Hey, thanks so much for tuning in to the Relove Podcast. This is Pastor Seth Yolorda, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to listen to this week's message. Our prayer is that it will leave you inspired, encouraged, and challenged as you grow higher in Christ. And I also just want to ask that if this message is a blessing to you, that you would take the time to share it, to send it to a friend, send it to a family member so that they too can be blessed. Again, we thank you for taking the time to listen, and we pray that you are blessed. Happy Sabbath, everybody. It's good to be together, amen? Turn to somebody right now and just say, you look beautiful. Yeah, tell somebody else, you look beautiful. I'm coming up, camera. Sorry about that. All right, all right. Can we give our praise a big thank you for leading us in worship today, man? Seriously, man, seriously. So... You know, we're, we're in this thing called a pandemic, right? And uh, I know it's been a little bit crazy. My wife works in the ER. She, no, sorry. She works in the ICU uh, at one of, our, one of our hospitals in uh, downtown L.A., super packed. And it's been a rough season for us as a family. But sometimes when I'm listening to Christians talk about the pandemic, it's as if it's the end of the world. And I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm just, I'm not going to belittle it because many have passed. We've had an emotional roller coaster in our home. We've been on prayer. I, I've, I've been feeling for my wife. I, I realized this season that her, she is more important to this world than I am. And I'm thankful for the work she does. But it's not the end of the world. Because the God who saw pandemics in the Bible saw us through it. The God who continues to work in history continues to pull us through. And so I don't want us to come out, as we're coming out, right, we're we're in the sunrise season, we're coming out to the other side. I pray that we are re-articulated to the God who wants us to be a living organism and not just go back to what we were before. Somebody say amen. We can't just go back to the way things were. We've got to be able to take this opportunity as we're coming out of this break to see something fresh and new, revitalize ourselves, not to be contractual Adventists or Christians, not just to be institutional, belonging, fundamental, believing people, but to be a people who is in love with a living God in a relational position to God. My wife and I have been married. We're married for a little while now. I want to tell you how we met. It was back in about 2006, and... uh, you know, we were all hanging out. We were at a, a church plant. I was a pastor there, a lot of young adults. We were all just hanging out. And one day, one of my, one of my closest friends, he says, man, what do you think about that Melanie girl, man? You, sh- you, know, you really should talk to her, man. You're, you're lonely and you're single. Grow up. I was like, no, 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 no. I'm not trying to have that. You know, I got in a relationship a couple years before that. I was like really focused on ministry. I was like, nah, man, I, you know, I don't want to deal with that. He's like, come on, man. She's a really good person. I was like, I know, but, you know, it's, no, no, I don't think so. He's like, what's wrong? I said, there's a few things wrong with her, you know. You know? <laughs> what, what are you talking about? I said, well, okay, first of all, listen, listen. She, yeah, I know, right, I know. She might be watching. I'm going to be in trouble. She, she, she's in the Disneyland. I said, uh, you know, I... She really loves Disneyland, and I really love to keep my money. There's a problem here. It's not going to work out, right? I said, our goals may not be aligned. And he says, but you know, she's amazing. She's kind. She's loving. She's giving. She's, she's super good to everybody. She's super friendly. And so he got me thinking about it. It started, like, turning in my head. And finally, one day I decided, okay, maybe I should grow up and try to see how this is going. We had been friends for over a year. 
And so finally I said, hey, Mel, you want to go for a walk? And she said, sure, I'd love to go for a walk. I've been ready for this walk for a while. My wife has this, this idea that God gave us revelation at the same exact time that we belong together. It's just that I wasn't smart enough to see it. And so she said she was going to wait around until I figured it out. So I said, you want to go for a walk? She said, yeah, let's go for a walk. And we went for a walk, and we walked, we hiked for a little while, and we sat down, and I began to share with her my life. I said, listen, you know, I really think you're a pretty amazing person. I think we should, you know, probably think about, you know, maybe, I don't know, dating. And she's like, really? Okay, continue. This is a good story. I said, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, like, I think you're amazing, and, you know, it'd be, it'd be uh, but, but, you know, I, I just didn't want to get interrupted in ministry. And what if you dating a pastor or getting married to a pastor might throw you off of your game? You know, I don't, I don't want you, like, feeling awkward and weird around people. And she says, okay, okay. So I said, how about we do this? Let's start a contractual friendship. <laughs> Gentlemen, this is not the way to start any relationship, by the way. I said, let's start a contractual relationship. A friendship. She's like, well, what, what, what is that? Can, can I Google it? I said, no. It's, we'll be friends with the intentions of dating. We'll do three months of this. She's like, three months of friends trying to be friends to date? I said, yes. And if at any point one party or the other decides this is not going to work, the other party won't get mad at them. She's like, oh, I see what you're doing right there. You're not slick. I said, well, you know, I mean, what if I turn out to be horrible? I don't want, I'm, I promise I won't be mad at you. Just don't be mad at me. And she said, okay, fine. Let's do this three-month thing. From that moment, when we had that conversation up on that little mountain watching the sunset, I absolutely fell in love with her. Like, we left. She went home. I called her. Did you make it home? She's like, yeah, I just left. I know. I'm just checking. So what's going on? She's like, are you not tired of talking? We just, no, no, no. Let's just talk. Let's just talk. We kept talking and going on and going on, and our friendship kept building. And then about two weeks from that point, she says to me, hey, Icky, listen, I've got I've to leave town with the family. We're going to go away for about two weeks. Are you okay with that? Ladies and gentlemen, this was 2007. This, I, don't, I don't know if Instagram was even alive back then. There, the web, you remember the web back in 2007? Somebody remember? <laughs> Tell your young folk what it was like back in the primitive days. They're used to this fast 5G stuff. They don't know what real life was like, the struggle we had. Having to grow up standing next to a payphone, right? Because you, you had to get that phone call at the payphone having to make collect calls at a payphone, and leaving the whole message you need to say on that collect call so that the people on the other side could hear it and come pick you up from wherever you are. They don't know that. These young people don't know anything about beepers. Somebody, somebody say amen. You remember them beepers? Yeah, you carry them around. You had two if you were a drug dealer. You know who you are. We were always too broke, so I had a beeper, but it was never, it was never on. So I just put a battery on it, and I turned it on and off so it would vibrate like somebody was calling me. Like, hey, hold on. Who's that nobody? I don't have service. 2007, Facebook was still a little baby. Instagram, I don't think, was birthed yet. 2007, the, the smartphone had just come out. Apple had just come out with their smartphone. There was no real way of connecting with people really good, good speed connections when they leave the country. So when they leave the country, it's as if they just died. So she's like, I'm leaving for two weeks. I said, I think I can handle that. She takes off. Ladies and gentlemen, two weeks this woman is gone and doesn't say one thing to me. Nothing is dead silent. I get an email that came in with the pixelated picture of her and her brothers smiling. And I'm thinking to myself, why are you smiling? I'm here. You should wait to come home to smile. 
No phone calls, no talking. This is a full-on break. By the time she lands back in America at LAX on August, Ikitami was at the airport. Let me tell you, God had given me revelation. She pulled up out of the airport. I'm, hey, hey. She's like, what are you doing here? I said, listen, the Lord gave me revelation. We need to be together. She said, wait, we're, we're only about not even a month into our friendship contract. Forget the contract. On that two-week period break, gave me the opportunity to move from something that was contractual and, co and cognitive to something relational and real. And I realized in that moment of time that I wanted something more. From that point forward, three years, one day, we got married. We have two kids. They're crazy. We have a minivan. We've got a Prius. We own a condo. We rent over here. We debate. We argue. We laugh. We love. It has been the most amazing 11 years, three months, two weeks, and about a day. And you know how this happened? All this happened because of a two-week break. All I needed was a two-week break to move me from a contractual, cognitive, cerebral situation to something relational. We have been on a bit of a pandemic break, but what has God done for us since we've moved through it? Is he doing something new? Are we becoming more relational? Do we want to have this, this, this gnosko, this experiential experience with God that pours into our community? Or will we come back and just contractually be who we were? Church, let's not just come back to be who we were before. There's a story I think that relates to me very well. It's a story in the book of John, and I think it speaks to what it means when we become relational with a God who is relational. John chapter 4 is a story about a Samaritan woman. I want to invite you to go there. Go ahead and open your iPads or your cell phones, whatever you need to do. Go to John chapter 4. When you get there, say amen. Did you get there with me? Amen. Don't lie to me. John chapter 4. So here's how we pick up the story. Jesus is moving from one area to another, and he goes directly through Samaria and stops at Sychar. He sits down at Sychar at midday, awaiting. And when he, he, he awaits there at the well, he sees this woman. He says, woman, give me some water. And uh, she says, you asking me for water? And they have this enlightening conversation together. She is blown away. She gets revelation. She's growing. The disciples have left to go find some food while she is having an experiential relationship with the God of the universe that transforms her life. And so she goes back into her town to tell them about Jesus. I want to just pick up on four points from this particular story that I think reveals a lot about what Jesus wants in our world and what he wants for us to be about in our world. Number one is this. Jesus nurtured belonging, firstly, because Jesus is inclusive. Turn to somebody and say, Jesus is inclusive. Jesus is inclusive. This story here of Jesus, keep in mind that because of this woman's experience and her experience with Jesus, she goes back into the village and everybody comes back out and has an experience with Jesus. She is known as the first Christian female evangelist. 
first recorded. She goes, does this amazing thing, and everybody comes back out to be with Christ. She has got high praise about who she is. But that's not how the story starts. She sits there, and she's sitting across from Jesus, and Jesus begins to hold this conversation as the people who are listening to John tell this story, they are blown away by the fact that Jesus is speaking to a woman. She knows this for a fact. The audience knows this for a fact. And maybe you and I are left a little bit distraught because why is that such a big deal? But in the context of Bible times, she being a female was not allowed to speak to a rabbi. She's a Samaritan, was not allowed to speak to a Jew. She being the lowest in her village had no right speaking to anyone. And yet Jesus holds this conversation with her. If there's any story in the Bible that speaks to inclusivity, it is this story. She says, you, a Jew, speaks to me, a Samaritan. How could this be? How could you ask me for water? And he says, if you knew who I really was, you'd ask me for water. And they begin to have this powerful transaction between each other. She wasn't, she wasn't quite familiar with who this person was and what he wanted in her life. But as she goes into this dialogue with him, she begins to change even though she doesn't realize it. You see, she wasn't just a part of the lowest group of human beings, according to the Jews. And she wasn't just the lowest gender in the group of genders. She was also the lowest individual in the village. People talked about her. She had a situation about her. And so when Jesus speaks to her, he not only speaks to her as a female, so he's not just speaking to her from a, a place of, of gender identity. He's speaking to her as well as a, from a place of class, her being the lowest in her village. He's also speaking to her as a way of racial identity, as her being Samaritan and he being Jew. When Jesus speaks to this lady, he is speaking to the marginalized of the marginalized. And so he speaks life into her, and now she is a part of the body. This is what Jesus does. What does that look like for us? Because she goes back and she talks to the people in the village and they all come out and we celebrate that. Praise the Lord. She evangelized everybody. But I want you to consider this. She didn't evangelize a bunch of, of Jews or chosen people. She evangelized a bunch of Samaritans. And if it's the one thing that's worse than one Samaritan is a whole village of Samaritans. She brought all of them back into the church. How would you and I feel if somebody brought in a bunch of people into this place that just offends our spiritual religiosity? That's what she does. She goes and gets a bunch more marginalized human beings, people that we would usually talk trash about, and bring them into the church. And Jesus says, this is where you belong. Are we bold enough to do that, church? Are you bold and courageous enough to reach out into the world? What groups have you marginalized lately? What individuals have you just, they just ring your bell wrong? You know those people. Have we been the kind of church that allows for inclusivity, bringing them here to the feet of Jesus? The gospel is inclusive. Secondly, Jesus nurtures belonging because Jesus is intentional. 
When you move from Galilee up into Jerusalem and you're moving back and forth, you've got this territory in the middle, which is Samaria. So it is said that the Jews would often move around that territory because they don't want to mix with the unclean people. So they would go down by the river, by the sea, and they go up, and then they come back across, and then they move back and forth like this. The reason being is they don't want to actually go through this unclean place. Jesus goes straight up into Sikar directly to the people. This is mind-blowing to me. Jesus is intentional about what he wants to do because he wants to reach people. Talk about, okay, so if you're going around, around the, 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 the section there, it's about 124 miles. Ladies and gentlemen, how many of you have walked a mile this week? Anybody walked a mile? Can I get a mile? One mile, I got one mile. Two, three, four. Anybody walk five miles? Five miles? Look, I got five, six. So we had about 10 miles between all of us here. 124 miles they would go just to not have to deal with these groups of people. Talk about ghosting somebody. Dang. They were serious. Jesus doesn't, doesn't mess around that way. He doesn't go around the normal route. He goes directly into Samaria, right into Sikar, which tells me two things, one of two things. Number one, either Jesus is lazy, which could be true, because I wouldn't want to walk around, or Jesus is intentional. He's going there for a reason. He has a purpose. He sits down with this lady, and they begin to have a relationship Something is transforming in her life. He wants to be there. He doesn't care what other people are going to say. He's not worried about what the disciples are thinking. He's not going to uh, uh, take too much time to consider, what if the Pharisees caught me here today? He just went there because he needed to reach her. Church, we got to stop worrying about what everybody else thinks. Oh, how powerful will we be if we just stopped worrying about what everybody else thinks? How great of a movement would we become if we took the time to care more for the other than what others are saying? I, uh, I was preaching at our church. A group of uh, DJs came in. And <laughs> they, they came in and, uh, you know, they were sitting in the back. And afterwards, we had a great conversation. I talked about the Lakers because I like them. I love them. And they got really interested. They're like, man, you know a lot about the Lakers. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know a lot about Jesus, too. Oh, that's great, 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 great. So we all started talking and hanging out. And uh, one of them says, you know what? I, I really feel like God's calling me back to church. I want to come back to church. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's come back to church. Let's do this. And he said, well, but I don't know. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I'm still trying to figure things out. You know, I'm, I'm DJing. I said, I'll come see you at the DJing. Where are you DJing at? He's like, oh, no, Pastor. You don't want to do that. I said, no, I'm coming. Where, where, where are you DJing? He's like, no, no. So later, later on that week, I texted him. I said, where are you playing? Where, where are you DJing at? He's like, oh, yeah, I'm down here. Friday night, though. So, you know, I said, okay, I'll just meet you at church. You guys start late so I can be there. I can sleep in and be there. I said, okay, cool. That Friday night, I got up. I went down to the bar. I walk in, and I'm looking for him. And he's going to be on the stage. I get in there, and I'm pulling up to the bar, and I pull up right to the bar, and the bartender says, what you want? I said, I want some water. What? Yeah, water on the rocks, baby. Handed me my water. I see him up there, and he's behind his, you know, I don't know, those turntables. You know, he's doing his thing, you know, touching his ear. I don't know what he's doing. And uh, there's, a, there's an MC, and he's walking around kind of cracking jokes to warm up the crowd. And he points at me, and he says, hey, you. Hey, man, that looks like a cup of water. Is that water or vodka? And everybody's like, ha, 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 ha. And I say, oh, that's water. He's like, oh, what you doing in a bar drinking water? Ha, 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 ha. And he's like this. Right in the back, he's like, he looks up, and he goes, oh. He says, tap the guy. 
Like, what? What? He's like, hey, that's my pastor. Oh, sorry, Reverend. God bless you. May that be holy water. After the sesh, I come up, and he's there. And there's kind of you know, some groupies hanging out. Some, some guys, they want to learn how to do this stuff. You know, they're hanging out. And I say, hey, what's up, man? He's like, why did you come here? Why? Why? Aren't you afraid someone is going to see you? Another pastor, another church, maybe the conference? Aren't you afraid of being fired? I said, hey, man, I said I was coming. I'm here. And for the rest of that night, we all went outside, them and their beers, and we had a Bible study till 2 in the morning. And if anybody says to me, what were you doing in a bar? I say, how did you know I was there? You should have been Bible studying with me. The church, we get too caught up in what everybody else is going to say, what somebody else is thinking, what that church might be doing, how much money they got, how many people's coming in there. That's not the point of church. Our church is to follow Jesus and be intentional about calling people back into his grace. Jesus is intentional. It's about time you and I got intentional. It's about time you and I got down to the work. The gospel in the church creates and nurtures belonging, thirdly, because Jesus redeems. I think if you and I need to sit with that for a second. Jesus redeems. This song that we sing, I am a friend of God. That's all I got, sorry. It's powerful to us, but let me tell you why it's powerful. It's not powerful because we deserve to be his friend or we qualify to be Jesus' friend. That's not the power of the song. The song, the song doesn't have deep value to us because somehow we, 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 we are qualified to be God's friend, right? We came to church. We pay tithe. We read our Bibles. We, you know, we do this. I, I get to be a friend of God. No, no. The song finds value because we don't deserve to be God's friend, and still he chooses us. That even though we are our broken vessels, he chooses us. This young lady, she got to go and proclaim that she's a friend of Jesus, and it brought the whole village out. You see, when we proclaim, I am a friend of God, what we are suggesting then to the world is that you also get to be a friend of God. It's not an exclusive, I am a friend of God, and you're not because you are not saved, mercy Jesus. It is, I am a friend of God, which means you get to be a friend of God because he loves you just as he loves me. Jesus is not about pretense. He's not worried about what we've got going on in our liturgy service and did we do this correct and, and is the production just right? And I, I, you know, I was a, a lead pastor for many years, so I'm very careful about that. And I'm like timing things. I'm like, mm-hmm, yeah, when is that smoke coming up? There he goes, yes, praise the Lord. We've got this. Did the prayer go right? Yes, praise the Lord, right? And as pastors, we get caught up in production because we like that. But church is not about production. Church is about proliferation of fruit. Jesus redeems. So he's there with this woman. Interestingly enough, some authors have written about the placement of a well in male and female. So in the Old Testament, the place of the well is a place for what? Where young men come to do what? Betrothed young women. So if you, you can think about quite a few characters who did this, where either they approached the woman at the well, Moses, right? 
or they sent their, their, their surrogate to go pick up a woman from the well. So it is part of their culture to see a man and a woman at the well and say, oh, they might be talking about marriage. There's something romantic going on there. There's something special. Young men did this all the time by the well because this was the one place that young ladies could go outside of the eyes of their authoritative fathers and their brothers. So when these women, which is a, a women task, go to the well, young men would sneak there and talk to them. And this is part of their, their cultural being, their context. So when the disciples came back and they saw Jesus at the well with the woman, what does the text say? They were surprised, but no one said anything. Have you ever wondered why the text says that in John chapter 4? It is because when they saw Jesus and a woman at the well, in their minds, this is just, this is just, are you kidding me, Jesus? Are you getting married? Or, or, or what will the people think when they see you and her in this place? But Jesus didn't care what they were thinking. He was after her heart. He was coming to redeem have you been in that situation where you're like in an awkward situation and you want to say something, but you don't know if you should? Have you, ever been, have you ever been around somebody who you just knew wasn't pregnant and then all of a sudden looked pregnant? Right? And you want to be like, are you pregnant? Don't say it. Don't you say it. Right? Or, or, or you know, somebody who's dating somebody and you're friends with both of them, but then all of a sudden on their social media, that other person disappears completely. Like, are y'all still dating? I don't know. I can't say it. I can't talk about it. Don't do it. When I was at uh, last year university, I traveled a lot for work. And uh, growing up with my brother, my brother is older than me, but we, you know, and we, we're tight. We're, we're like real close friends. We're, um, it, but I've never seen my brother in a relationship. Up until that point, I was probably almost 30. I had never seen my brother in a relationship. I'd never seen him, you know, hold any other female's hands apart from his sisters and his mom. I'd never seen him talk googly, nothing to nobody. I just thought my brother was just a rock-hard stone man who was never going to get married. We were rooming together, living together. I disappear for like a weekend on travel. I come back. And in my room with my brother was this young lady, and she was sitting on the couch watching TV. And my brother is sitting on top of our bunk bed, and my bed was underneath it. And I walk in, and I looked at her. I walked to put my bag down. I looked at my brother, and he's just hanging out there, and she's just watching her TV, eating popcorn. I said, hey, who are you? She says, oh, hi, Icky. Good to see you back. What? Who are you? Oh, yeah, I'm Judy. Oh, okay, Judy. I looked at my brother. Hey, who's this? He said, hey, that's Judy. I know that. But who is she? Yeah, she's, you know, huh. In my head, I'm like, what do I ask next? Do somebody tell me what's happening. So I just left. I'm out of here. Walk back in later. She's sitting there watching. Hey, Ju hi, Judy. Who are you? She says, oh, ask your brother. Hey, bro who's Judy? Who's that one? You dirty rat. Tell me what's going on here. Weeks go by. I don't know what's happening. They stand close to each other. You know, they talk, they kind of snicker, they laugh. And one night we were driving um, up to the Pierce Street exit, and she's sitting in the front. I'm sitting in the back, and he's sitting on the driver's seat. And then he leans over and gives her a kiss on the cheek, and my mind was blown, people. I said, oh, this is what this is. 
Now they're married and they're happy. But think about how awkward that must have been for Jesus' disciples, right? They come in and say, Who, what, what's happened? Are you, uh, I don't even know. They were surprised, but no one could ask. And so the lady runs off and she says, and Jesus says, hey, look, I'm not even hungry. I'm, I'm after my father's work here. In other words, he points them back to the reason why he's there. He's like, I don't care what you think about us. I'm not here for that. I'm not here for what you're thinking. I'm here to proliferate the gospel, to bring people into redemption so that they can find their way back to belonging to God. This is what it means to belong. Jesus nurtures belonging because he was inclusive. So says the word, for God so loved the world. Jesus was intentional. Jesus redeemed. This is the kind of God that we serve. And he calls us not just to belong to church, but to invite others to belong to church. When was the last time you reached out and loved somebody? As evangelism. Did you know in our church since 1964, according to Dr. David Trim, the archivist for the, G for the GC, we have lost over 15 million people from the church? Since 1964. I want you to sit on that for a second. 1964. Just a quick show of hands. How many of you have been here since 1964? How many of you have been around? A couple of you guys. Yeah, you've been around the, the earth a few times. Yeah. Since 1964, over 15 million have left the church. Two-thirds of those, according to Dr. Alan Martin, are young adults. That's almost 10 million young adults have left the church since 1964. You probably know some. Maybe your brother, maybe your sister, maybe your cousin maybe an aunt, maybe an uncle, you know them. You know how big 10 million is? That's the county of Los Angeles. Could you imagine waking up tomorrow and all of LA is gone? Maybe some of you would be happy about that. Finally got those people out here. They've been, they've been taking all the space up now. Huh? Gone. And when he did the study and the research, the top five answers boiled down for the reason why they left is they didn't feel like they belonged to the church. Not because of style of worship, not theology, not eschatology, not dress, worship style of dress, none of that. It was because they didn't feel belong. Church, the best thing we can do is not up our music game and our production game. The best thing we can do is love people better. Create belonging in our churches. Invite others to be a part of this. And I know, you know, like, well, why, what does that mean? I mean, do we become loosey-goosey? No, listen, you don't have the control of the reins. God does. You don't have to worry about loosey-goosey. God's got the control on the, he's, he's tapped the wheel. He's got that covered. You just bring people here. Well, 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 do they need to look a certain way? No, we are a church. All of us know what it's like to be human and broken. Let God do the fixing and stop trying to fix people. Yes. It's time, church. We can argue about a lot of foolish things. We can argue about dress. We can argue about this. We can argue about that. Or we can go out and create belonging in this world and let Jesus transform lives. I'm going to close because I'm hungry. Praise the Lord. Somebody said there were haystacks here. You guys are super Adventists. Praise God for you. Mm, it's going to be yummy. Did you bring Fritos? 
Hey, you are crazy Adventists. Praise the Lord. All right. I'm going to close. Um, so I, I grew up uh, Adventist. I'm, I'm like sixth generation Adventist. Like, I'm, like I'm, it's disgusting how Adventist I am, right? Came to America, grew up going to Adventist school. I went to, uh, to L.A. Union, L.A. Adventist Academy. Went to South Bay Junior Academy. Uh, then I went up and boarded school for four years. Then I went up to uh, uh, PUC, and then they invited me to leave. So I came back down and <laughs> went to La Sierra. I did two more degrees. I mean, I'm, I, I'm, if you need to know anything about Adventism, come talk to me. I'll, I'll lie to you about it. Um, but in high school, there was something interesting about, about uh, being Adventist. And that was whatever school you went to, as somebody in academy, you know, those of you who went to academy or in academy, you'll, you'll get what I'm saying right now. We become really territorial. Like academies, Adventist academies are little, like little gang members. You, you know yourselves by your initials. L-L-U, L-S-A, M-B-A. You know, we say stupid things like that. Like we, you know, that's how we roll. Where are you from? I'm from GAA. Okay, okay. And you know, instead of like gang turf wars, we'd have like basketball tournaments, flag football, not real football, flag football. And then we'd, and then like the, the ultimate turf war was like choir. Um, we'd have these big choir festivals. I don't know if you've ever been to one, but the choir festival, you know, all the academies come together and we're like, oh shoot, they're doing a song. Oh, let's, let's get our song. Yeah, dog, yeah, you showed them. We'd have these, these sing offs. Well, I played for a school that, um, in, in, in that particular conference at the time, was predominantly, you know, uh, academies that had more white and Asian people. And there was a couple urban schools besides. Ours wasn't urban, but, it, you know, they let me in there, and then a bunch of other ethnic folk got in, so we got kind of ghetto. And then there was urban schools in the area, so there was a couple others. So, you know, we would, we'd all face each other, but everybody was kind of, kind of like, you know, they were a little bit nervous of me because they'd never really seen a Tongan before. So it was like, dang, look at him. He's tough. He's real tough, right? Because it's it like, you know, it's new to them. And uh, in my school, my, I was coming into my senior year, and in my, my senior year uh, uh, playing ball there, Sacramento Adventist Academy, another academy in Sacramento, had just picked up a brand new basketball center. Now, I kind of owned the center position, not because I was good, but because I was thick. And so, you know, I thought I had it. And then Sacramento Adventist Academy, uh, the, the word got through the grapevine, the Adventist grapevine, that they had just picked up a brand new center, Brand new basketball player, and he came from public school. Listen, to academy kids, when you say public school, it's like saying prison. Like, he, oh, he's from prison, man. He's tough, right? He, he was in the public system. He was six foot six, sleek, beautiful African American with deep midnight skin, glorious smile. His teeth were four feet long, each tooth. Everybody was impressed by him. Oh, you should see his vert. Oh, he could really play. He had a chance to play at this place and this place, and it was making me angry. No, I'm the center in this conference. How dare this new guy try to come up and pick up game? No, sir. When I meet him at that tournament, he will know who's the king of the hill. We got to PUC. First tournament came in. We stepped up to the middle. He, leaks, he, looks, he looks me in my eyes. I don't flinch. I look back in his eyes. But in my head, I was like, dang, you're tall. 
I was looking at his little ripply muscles, and I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to really teach this guy a lesson. How dare he come in here and get everybody's respect? I am the one who owns this place. Ref comes in, he bits the ball, and we touch the ball, he throws it up, and immediately I just take off after that ball, and all of a sudden, like, like black lightning, he just passes me up, and he keeps going and going and going. And at some point, I thought, you're going to hit the ceiling. He grabs the ball, taps it to his guys, and he trots back like a little gazelle. I was not happy. We get down into the block, first quarter in. And while he was a smooth and sleek man, I was too much weight for him. So when the ball would run around that rim, I, I buckled him down behind me, and I could feel him trying to move and wiggle. But like a piece of seaweed in the ocean, he wasn't going to move anything. And I locked him in, and, and the ball pops out of the rim, and I just jump right up, and I grab the ball down. And as I bring the ball down, he cuts underneath me, which I believe was intentional. And when I come down, I twist my ankle, and the thing just blew up. Everybody stops. Ah! I'm looking. Ah! What is that? I don't know. They tie me out. They take me out. They begin to wrap my thing in ice, and the coach says, hey, Icky, you're done for the, you're just done, man. This is the tournament's done for you. Just said, I said, no, coach. You're going to tape me up, and you're going to put me back in because i got a point to prove. He needs to know who I am. He's going to feel my wrath, and someday people are going to tell stories about us and how I limp back on the court to teach him a lesson. No one has ever told a story about us. Nobody. <laughs> I limp back on that court. 30 seconds later, they were like, get this guy off, please. Get him off. Medics came on, pulled me off. I sat down was so bitter at this guy. So bitter. I was telling my friends, you know, this, he's going to get it. You know what? This guy's going to get it from me. He's going to, you, you know what happened to that? You know what I did? You know what happened to that guy? He married my sister. <laughs> Taught him a lesson. Yeah. <laughs> they have two beautiful kids. They hang out with my children, best of friends. He and I are thick as thieves. We play, we laugh, we hang, we breathe life together. And I thought just how important that one moment was for me, right? What am I doing? Who am I trying to prove myself to be? Why am I excluding him from, from something that could be more beautiful? But in that moment, it just felt so real and felt so right to have like this air of arrogance about me that I'm in the right place and he's not. And sometimes, church, we do that. Let's be honest. Right? We get into a place where we're like, we have the truth. We are right. And we get this air of arrogance when we see other people around. We're like, no, you don't belong in this space. Uh-uh, not until you figure stuff out. When God wants to do something more beautiful through all of us. What beautiful things is God creating that we've missed out on because we've sold out being loving for being right? Is that where Jesus wants us to be? I'm proud of you, church. Pastor Seth and I are good friends. And I've loved seeing him work. I love seeing you all rally together. You are a bright spot in a dry and arid land. If I may encourage you, continue forward to breach the frontier of creating belonging for others. You got this. You got this.
So let's go out into this world and continue to proliferate the love of Jesus that others would find their way in here too and proclaim too that he is the God, the God of love. Let's pray. Oh, to be your friend, God. Not because we're deserving. Not because we're righteous or pious enough. But because in our brokenness, in our humanness, you died for us. We ask, God, that you would breathe fresh life into us as a church family today. Reignite vision in Relove. Breathe strong leadership in the pastoral staff. Continue to grant dreams to the members. And then, Lord, let them take the courage not to listen or worry about what anyone else says or does, but that they would run boldly and radically after you. Going into this world, including and inviting all to come to the cross of Jesus. And now, bless us. As we move from here, we love you. 